If you read the, the daily newspaper, how many of you read our daily newspaper, the Columbia Daily Herald? My guess is that very few of you subscribe to the paper anymore. It seems like newspapers are dying off rapidly, and, and I think ours is going that way. I doubt that very many of you subscribe or read it, but if you do read the Columbia Daily Herald, you may or may not know that Friday is the day that they include a religion page in the Columbia Daily Herald. And if you were looking at it a week ago Friday, you saw this article on the religion page in the Columbia Daily Herald, Arguments About What's in the Bible. This was an article written by Elder Brian L. Walson of the 70 North American Central Area Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So this guy is a ranking official in the Mormon church. And he has a number of things to say about the Bible. I think pretty outrageous statements against the Bible, actually. And we want to study those in our uh, brief message tonight. I think he does a, a, a really good job, actually, of exposing their erroneous views concerning the Bible. And we, we I just don't want to let that pass without commenting about it with the idea you, that you know, maybe this article was written with the idea nobody can answer this. Yeah, this is easily answered. We want to, we want to answer that tonight. Uh, just sort of reaffirm our confidence in the Bible as the inspired Word of God. As we get into that, we stop for a minute to thank you for being here. Uh, we appreciate you on a Sunday night to make an effort to come back again to join in Bible study and worship. Uh, to praise God in song and prayer, to study from His Word. Thank you for being here to be a part of it. We have visitors again tonight. We're always grateful for our visitors. Please come whenever you can. Let's talk about this. I, I'm, I'm certain that you probably, especially those of you who are sitting in the back, can't probably read all of that text. But I'm going to read it for you and then highlight parts of it and we'll comment as we go along. So here it just identifies who the author is. And he goes on to say, As Christians, we appeal to the Bible to inform our decisions about how to live our lives. We realize that our decisions determine our destiny and that our decisions that align with God's will lead to happiness and peace. We search the Scriptures for unchangeable truth, doctrine, to inform our decisions. Notice right here, though, he says, Members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints love and revere the Bible as the Word of God. We study it diligently, teach its timeless principles and doctrines to our children, and we rejoice in the Bible's witness of the life and mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not believe the Bible as it is currently, as it currently exists to be without error. Now that's a very important admission on their part. I thought it was really an odd thing to say, we love and revere the Bible. But we do not believe that it in its current state exists without error. That seems to be a contradictory statement to me. If it's full of error, then how should I love and revere it? It sort of reminds me of an old story of some young men who decided to get an apartment together and they were, they were going to share the, the uh, cooking duties. But they made an agreement that uh, whenever a meal was served up, if you complained about it, then you had to do the cooking and the, and the dishwashing for the next month without, without relief. And so about the first night they sat down to eat, and one of the guys put a bite full in his mouth, and he spit it out. He said, that is the most awful, rank, nasty thing I ever put in my mouth. It makes me sick to my stomach. I almost want to vomit. 
said, but it's just the way I like it. <laughs> just the way I like it. That, that's sort of what this guy is saying. We revere the Word of God. We think it's wonderful, but we don't think it, we, it does not exist without error. I would go on to ask, how would we know then which parts we should love and revere and which parts we should reject as being erroneous? If it's not without error, then how can we trust any part of it? Uh, how do we know what parts to accept? He has not answered that. Let's go on. Uh, he says, as the Bible was compiled, organized, translated, and transcribed, many errors entered into the text. The existence of such errors becomes apparent when one considers the numerous and often conflicting translations of the Bible in existence today. Now, that's a pretty bold claim, but he really will not offer any proof of that claim. He does talk about the fact that there, right here, he says, there are numerous, sometimes conflicting translations of the Bible in existence today. Certainly, we acknowledge that there are a lot of different translations. And here, clearly, he's got to be talking about English translations, right? Uh, there are translations in hundreds of different languages around the world, but we're dealing here with English translations. But you know what? We never claimed that any translation of the Bible was flawless. Nobody I know makes that claim. Now, there are some in the denominational world, for instance, who will try to uh, pinpoint the King James Version as the only one true and right translation of the Bible. I think they're wrong about that. The, the King James Bible has errors in translations as well as all that. I think, it's a good, I think it's a good translation, but it's not without error. But we never said the translations were without error. We said that the Bible was perfect in its original language. That's what we're talking about. So, you know, he's attacking the various conflicting translations of the Bible. Uh, uh, we're not here to defend any particular translation of the Bible. But having said that, I would go on to say that I think there are several really good, reliable English translations of the Bible. None of them, I think, are without flaw. Uh, and we study that sometimes about different versions and, and where, where certain versions may have a mistake here or there. Uh, but again, we're not defending the translations. We're, we're defending the Bible in its original given form, Old Testament Hebrew and a little bit Aramaic and the New Testament in uh, Koine Greek. That's what we're defending. We'll have a lot of evidence of that. and We'll talk about that as we go along. As he continues in his critique of the Bible, he says, careful students of the Bible are often puzzled by apparent contradictions and omissions. Consequently, diverse and sometimes divisive interpretations of the same Bible passages arise. Well, first of all, he talks about apparent contradictions. Well, there are apparent contradictions in the Bible, uh, but they can be resolved. They may appear to contradict, but they can be resolved. An apparent contradiction is not an actual contradiction. Something may appear to contradict, but then when you study it, you can resolve that contradiction. As we've often pointed out, when you're faced with any potential contradiction in the Scripture, all you need is one feasible explanation to resolve that contradiction. There may be multiple explanations that resolve the contradiction, but an apparent contradiction, certainly, we understand. Whole books have been written about apparent contradictions of the Bible. A man named Haley published a thick reference work entitled Apparent Discrepancies and Contradictions in the Bible. And he resolved 
hundreds, if not thousands of them in his work, uh, John W. Haley. So, uh, apparent contradictions, that's not what we're talking about here. Now, he also mentioned right here, he said there were omissions. He says people are puzzled by apparent contradictions and omissions. What are the omissions? He doesn't even want to talk about what the omissions are necessarily. He'll talk about something here in a minute. We'll, we'll comment a little later. But how would we know if something was omitted from the Bible? How would we know that? If it's not there, if it's been omitted, how would we know it's been omitted? That's, he's just throwing out accusations here. He's just throwing out accusations without proof. He talks about diverse and sometimes divisive interpretations of the Bible. Well, are there diverse and sometimes divisive interpretations of the same Bible passages? Yes. Yes. Now, that's a reality, of course. But that, the problem is with us, not with God's Word, right? If we're interpreting the Bible differently and divisively, then that doesn't say that God's Word is flawed. That says we are flawed. We are flawed in our reading and understanding of the text. So that doesn't go against the Bible. That goes against us as students of the Bible. We need to be better students of the Bible. And if all would follow good study principles, those divisive interpretations would go away. So, here he sort of laid his groundwork. We love the Bible. We revere the Bible, but it's not without error. Uh, there's a lot of translations, differences in translations, and it results in, in divisive interpretations of the Bible. And then he asks a question right here. He says, so what are we to do? He says, what are we going to do about this? Well, he gives his answer. So what are we to do? He says, we believe that God's pattern from biblical times has not changed and that he continues to reveal his will through his servants, the prophets. Amos 3, verse 7. We believe that, scriptural can that the scriptural canon is open. Now, you get this? You get what he's saying? We can't agree on the Bible. There's a lot of divisive interpretations of the Bible, different translations of the Bible that he blames for some of these divisive interpretations. What, what are we going to do? Well, we claim, as Mormons, he says, we claim that Revelation is still open, that God is still revealing himself. He's going to go on and name some of those books that he thinks God has revealed over oh, in recent times. But God, because we, he says, as Mormons, believe that God is continuing to work to reveal His truth to mankind, then that, for us, he says, resolves all these divisive issues. Now, the implication of that is, that's why all Mormons are united. That there are no differences, disagreements among Mormons. I want to tell you, uh, that's one of the most disingenuous and flawed arguments could possibly be. I've had more. I've had Mormons make that argument to me in person. Joel and I one time had a Bible study with some young Mormons over here right next door, and that's one of the arguments they made. You, you guys who believe in the Bible, you're all divided. Us Mormons, we're all united because we have this con a continuing uh, revelation. Well, that's not even true. That's that's effectively just a bald-faced lie. I got a list here of dozens of different Mormon sects. They're not all united. Let me read you some of these. There's the pure Church of Christ. There's the independent church. There's the Alston Church. There's the Church of Jesus the Bride, the Lamb's Wife. There's the true Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. i got six pages here. 
There's the Council of Friends. There's the Apostolic United Brethren. There's the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There's the Church of the Firstborn of the Fullness of Times. There's the Church of Jesus in Solemn Assembly. There's the Church of the Firstborn of the Lamb of God. There's the Church of the New Covenant in Christ. There's the Righteous Branch of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Kingdom of God. There's the... This one's pretty good, and i got to get this... i got to read this right here. There's the... The, the true and living church of Jesus Christ, the saints of, living church of Jesus Christ of saints of the last days. There's the church of the firstborn and the general assembly of heaven. There's the church of Zion. There's the united order family of Christ. There's the restoration church of Jesus Christ. And that's not all of them. And you just begin to get the point that what they're saying here, people are divided over the Bible. He's blaming the Bible. I think he's wrong about that. But they say, we got a solution to that. We believe that God's continuing to reveal things to us. And therefore, we're all united because we have this ongoing, continuing revelation. They're not united. They're as divided as anybody else. And so I think that's a, a really flawed and faulty claim on the part of these Mormons. I think it's a deceptive claim. I think they're being purposefully deceptive in making that argument. Now he's going to identify some of these. He says, in addition to the Bible, Latter-day Saints revere and study the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price. Stop there for a minute. You recognize those as the works of Joseph Smith, right? The Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. Those are, those are produced by Joseph Smith. Now, if you've ever done any reading about Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith was really a character. He was a convict, a con man, around Palmyra, New York. Uh, somehow or another, he got people to believe that he had received special revelation from God. An angel showed him where there were golden plates. And those golden plates had inscribed on it a message from God. And the angel showed it to him and helped him translate those golden plates into the Book of Mormon. The angel's name was Moroni. And the Book of Mormon was the product of that angel helping him translate those plates. Well, the plates are not available to us anymore. The, paint, the, the plates were taken away after the translation was made. Joseph Smith quite a character. Uh, and as I said, he, he was a known and convicted con, uh, con artist uh, in New York. Somehow or another, he got people to believe that he'd received a revelation from God. He wrote these books. These are some of the books they say are the ongoing revelation. And all of us Mormons, we don't have to trust just the Bible because the Bible is flawed, contradictory. We have this latter-day revelation. That's what they're saying. And then notice, he says, he goes on to say, not only those books, but he says, also the words of modern prophets and apostles. Now, Joseph Smith has been dead for more than a 100 years, but there are continuing prophets, he says, who have revelation from God. Well, how do we know which ones are really inspired of God? How is that being confirmed? Uh, you know, we talk a lot of times about the miracles of the New Testament serving as confirmation, the Holy Spirit in, uh, empowering inspired men to perform miracles to confirm that what they were saying is true. How do we know that what is being written by these so-called modern-day prophets and apostles? How, what's the confirmation of what they are saying is true? How do we know which one should be included? This is from God. This one's not. If I sat down and wrote out a page, could I submit it to them and say, this should be included in your book? This is from God. What's to prevent me from doing that? How do we know? 
And the fact of the matter is that Jesus said all truth was going to be revealed in the lifetime of the apostles, of his apostles. And we've got to have confidence in the fact that revelation was concluded in that first period time frame. In John chapter 16, verse 12, Jesus said, I have many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever things he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Jesus told his twelve apostles, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he's going to reveal all truth to you. He didn't say he's going to reveal some of it. And then, about 1,800 years from now, I'm going to reveal some more to Joseph Smith. And then even after him, I'm going to give some more truth to some other guys who will come along. That's not what Jesus said, is he? And then we remember Jude verse 3, one of our memory verses from last year. In Jude verse 3, it speaks of the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. It's a, the revelation of God is a finished proposition. It's not an ongoing proposition. The Mormons believe in ongoing revelation. That's a huge problem, right? When the scripture says revelation is finished and they say it is ongoing. Notice, notice here this last part of this paragraph. He says, all these sources of ex, uh, eternal truth, all these sources of eternal truth work together to establish, clarify, and testify of the plan of our Heavenly Father and to bring people unto Jesus Christ. I want you to, to notice right here especially this word established. All these sources of eternal truth work together to establish the plan of our Heavenly Father. What he is saying there is that the things that are currently being revealed and written down are on a par with the thing that the inspired apostles wrote in the first century. They are establishing God's plan and truth. And we simply deny that as being the case whatsoever. Well, he goes on. Now he begins to quote another guy. He says, Reverend Duke Tufty, pastor, United Temple on the plaza, has this to say. He says, the 66 books of the Bible were written over a 1,300-year time period by many authors with many viewpoints. Stop there for a minute. That's our argument. That's our argument for the inspiration of the Scriptures, right? The Bible was written over a, a, a long period of time, hundreds of years, by lots of different people who came from different backgrounds. They had different educational experiences. They, they had different life experiences. Uh, David was a king. Amos was a, was a simple shepherd. I mean, a, a wide diversity of men from all types of backgrounds didn't even all speak the same language. And when you put the, the Bible together, all those independent, separate works, and you put them together, and there is no contradiction, that's our argument, right? He says the 66 books of the Bible were written over a 1,300-year time period by many authors with many viewpoints. Since that time, now notice this, since that time, the Bible has been tweaked, touched up, added to, and deleted from to fit the viewpoints of the ruling class as well as to serve the personal interest of religious authorities. Well, I think that's a, a pretty bold claim, and I really don't think there's any proof for it. The reason why this can't be true, notice he says, since the, since the Bible was written, it's been tweaked, touched up, added to, deleted from. When did that happen? When did that happen? Because we have manuscript evidence of the writing of the Bible that dates clear back nearly to the time in which the Bible was written. Uh, let's think about that for a minute. We've studied this before, but think about the Old Testament. Uh, 
We have Old Testament manuscripts. We have had for some time manuscripts of the Old Testament. Now, when we say a manuscript, we're talking about a handwritten copy of the Old Testament scriptures, right? We have had, for a long time, we have had manuscripts of the Old Testament dating back to the 9th century, sometime between 800 and 900 A.D. We've got manuscripts. Well, somebody said, well, yeah, but remember, those things were written before Christ, right? They were written hundreds of years, maybe, before Christ. So we don't have, there was some time period there, maybe a thousand years or more there, where somebody could have been tampering with the Old Testament text. Well, along comes the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? In 1947, an Arab shepherd boy uh, in, a, in an area around Jericho was watching his sheep and out of boredom, I suppose, like kids do, he was taking rocks and he was trying to throw them into a cave opening up on the cliff above him. From time to time, one of the rocks he threw would, would enter the cave opening and when they did, he could hear a jar breaking or something breaking inside. They climbed up there. And inside that cave was the first discovery of many that they then discovered. A Jewish sect known as the Essenes uh, working about hundred years before Christ had made numerous copies of the Old Testament text. Now think about this. The, 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 the copies we had were from 8-900 A.D. The Dead Sea Scrolls backed that all the way up to 100 B.C. So uh, almost a thousand years. Suddenly, experts and scholars were able to compare something for what had happened to it over a thousand year period of time. They could take these 8-900 A.D. manuscripts and compare them to these Dead Sea Scrolls which were written at least a hundred years before Christ. And you know what they found out? They found out that there was effectively no difference whatsoever. They were almost perfectly identical. Hand copies made over a period of a, of a thousand years and no additions, no subtractions, no tweaking, no changing... Why? Well, because the people who were doing that did revere the Bible. They were careful to make sure that they meticulously copied the Bible. We've got other sources that take us even further back. The Septuagint version of the Old Testament was a translation from Hebrew. The Old Testament text was originally given in Hebrew. And the Septuagint version was translated into Greek. That was done about 250 B.C. The Septuagint version was made about 200... 250 years before Christ. That's the version, by the way, that Jesus and the apostles quoted from when they quoted the Old Testament Scriptures. So we go all the way back to 250 B.C. And so we're able to compare our Bibles to Bibles... Uh, we're, we're able to compare our Old Testament to Old Testaments that were 250 years before Christ. So we've, got all, so we've taken away the possibility of any corruption, adding to, tweaking, deleting... We've, we've taken that away all the way back to at least 250 B.C., right? The Vulgate was a Hebrew to Latin translation. It's a little more recent. Uh, the Vulgate, which translated Hebrew to Latin, dates to 400 A.D. But then we also have secular Hebrew writings that quote the Hebrew Scriptures that go way back in time. What I'm saying here is this guy says that this has been tweaked, touched up, added to, deleted from to fit the viewpoints of the ruling class. When did that happen? When did that happen? Because we're able to go back 
hundreds of years before Christ in, re, in regards to the Old Testament. We can go back hundreds of years before Christ. They didn't do it since 250 B.C. Because we know what the, what the Old Testament Scriptures read in 250 B.C. because we have the Septuagint version, right? So anything between 250 B.C. and now hadn't been tweaked, touched up, added to, deleted from, and so there's just no time. What I'm saying is we have ancient enough documents confirming the Old Testament Scriptures to say, no, nobody's been tampering with that because we can go way, way, way back and compare what we've got today to what they had way, way back then and there hadn't been any changing going on. What about the New Testament text? In regards to the New Testament text, we have... Uh, some fragments of New Testament documents dating to the first half of the second century. So the apostles lived in the first century, right? And the, and the things that those inspired writers wrote were copied and passed around. And we have copies of those manuscripts dating to the first half of the second century, just within decades of when the apostles died. We have uh, codex manuscripts. You know what a codex manuscript is? Uh, the Romans, instead of using scrolls, they actually bound together pages into books like we have. A codex manuscript is a, is a book form of manuscript. We have those dating to the 4th century A.D. We have ancient versions or translations made as early as the 2nd century. And we have just all kinds of quotations from early Christians who lived near the end of the 1st century and into the 2nd century, some of whom were acquainted with the apostles and quoted their work. Now, what we're saying here is, in regards to the New Testament, we have even better evidence. There has been no time for what he calls adding to, tweaking, touching up, adding to, and deleting. There was no time for that. We can compare what we've got today all the way back to the early 2nd century, within decades of the death of the apostles. We know that nothing's been added between now and then. So when did all this changing take place that this Mormon author is claiming? There was no time for that to happen. Let me read you a, a quote from Josh McDowell and Norman Geisler, both of these experts in such matters. Here's what they say. The New Testament is by far the most reliable ancient writing known today. There exist as many as 25,000 ancient manuscripts that contain all or portions of the New Testament. Counting Greek copies alone, the texts are preserved in 5,366 partial and complete manuscripts hand-copied from the 2nd through the 15th century. A few New Testament fragments are very early, dating from the 2nd century. Add to these Greek manuscripts, uh, add to these Greek manuscripts the more than 10,000 Latin Vulgate and at least 9,300 early translations, and we approach the earlier mentioned number of 25,000. By contrast, the manuscripts for most other ancient books date from about a thousand years after their original composition. To compare this to the other ancient writings, Homer's Iliad is in second place behind the New Testament with no more than 643 copies. Now get that. We've got thousands of copies of the Bible. The next best ancient document is Homer's Iliad, just 653 but you know what? It's been pointed out. What's interesting? Nobody disputes that we have an accurate copy of Homer's Iliad with only 653 manuscripts to compare. We got thousands of manuscripts in the New Testament that say, oh, it's all been, it's all flawed. You can't trust it. He goes on, the oldest copy of the Iliad dates to about 500 years after the original. This is dramatic contrast to the oldest papyrus text of the New Testament dated at near 125 AD. 
The importance of the vast number of manuscript copies cannot be overstated. This abundance of transcript, this abundance of manuscripts makes it possible to reconstruct the original with virtually complete accuracy. There is more evidence of the reliability of the text of the New Testament as an accurate reflection of what was initially written than there is for any ten pieces of classical literature put together. We may rest assured that what we have today is a correct representation of what was originally given. Now, these guys are scholars and experts in that, and they completely deny what this guy says, right? He says ever since the Bible was written that people have been playing with it, changing it, altering it. It's just not so. That's just a false and unsubstantiated claim, and it's easily provable that it is. I, and I've got to believe that this guy knows better, and that this is probably purposeful deception in what he says about the Bible. Quickly, the text goes on of this article. He says, when King James oversaw the translation of his version, he chose to leave out more than 500 pages that he disagreed with and added many that supported his beliefs. Well, King James, 1611, right? So four hundred plus years ago. A couple of things he says about King James. One was that he chose to uh, add many things that support his beliefs. There's no indication at all that anything was added to the text by King James. Remember, you couldn't just add them in because we've got these ancient manuscripts, right? We've got the ancient manuscripts. King James can't just come along later and start adding things in because it wouldn't in, it wouldn't be in the original text, right? Because we got all those manuscripts we were just talking about. He didn't add anything. Well, what's this about that he left out more than 500 pages? King James left out 500 pages? Do we need those 500 pages? You know what he's talking about there? He's talking about the apocryphal books of the Old Testament. That's what was left out when the King James Version was made. We've studied about the apocrypha before. We won't go into great detail there, but you remember there were 15 books known as the apocryphal books, and there were some additions to some of the existing books in the Bible. I'll read the list real quick. First and second, Esdras, Tobit, Judith, additions to the book of Esther, the wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, letter to Jeremiah, prayer of Azariah, Susanna, Bell and the dragon, prayer of Manasseh, first, second, third, and fourth Maccabees, and Psalm 151. Now, those are the apocryphal writings. That's what this guy's talking about when he says King James left out 500 pages. He left out the apocrypha. You know why he did so? He did so because all of those are of questionable origin and all of those lack the signs of inspiration. But you know what? We know about that, don't we? This is not, this guy acts like he's revealing something to us we didn't know. We know King, the King James Version left out the apocryphal books. We still have those apocryphal books. We can study them if we want to. And when we do study them, we find out that they don't convey the, the notion of inspiration that we find in the 66 books of the Bible. That's why they're not there. Now, you may know that Catholics include those things in their Bible, but they have been generally rejected by scholars as being not authentic and not bearing the marks of inspiration. That's why they're not in our Bibles today. But it's not like those have been lost for all time because King James left them out. No, we still have them. You can read them if you want to. I've got copies. If you want to read a copy of the Apocryphal books, I can get you a copy of that. It's not like they've been lost to mankind. They're not there because they don't deserve to be there. And that's why they were excluded when the King James Bible was translated into English. Okay? So again, that's just, that's just a, I think, a, 
a really faulty and flawed argument. It goes on. The, the article goes on. It is important to remember when we read the Bible today, we are reading a translation of a translation of a translation into a language that didn't exist when the original Bible was written. That is not what we're reading. This guy's got to know better than that. When we read our English translations, we are not reading a translation of a translation of a translation. That's not how that work is done. What translators do in reliable translations, now there's some faulty ones, there's some paraphrased Bibles and so forth, we understand that, but you're talking about a reliable translation of the Bible like the King James Version, like the New American Standard Version and so forth. Those teams of translators go back to the original, they construct the original Greek text and they translate from that. They don't just, just reword an existing translation. It's not a translation of a translation of a translation. They go back to the original Greek. And teams of scholars consult with one another in order to determine the true meaning of those words and to put it into English so that we can read it and understand it today. This guy either is totally uninformed or is purposely trying to mislead people when he says, well, we pick up our Bibles today, what we've got is a translation of a translation of a translation into a language that didn't exist when the Bible was written. That's just absolutely not true. Then notice this. He says, scholars agree there are more than 20,000 inconsistencies in the Bible as a result of different people with different viewpoints. You know, scholars actually don't agree to that. Let me read you another quote. This is from Ezra Abbott, member of the American Revision Committee on the American Standard Version. He says the number, notice how he works this down. How many serious discrepancies are there in our Bible? He says the number of various readings frightens some innocent people and figures largely, and figures largely in the writing of more ignorant disbelievers in Christianity. 150,000 various readings. Must not these render the text of the New Testament wholly uncertain and thus destroy the foundation of our faith? You see what he's saying? He, this guy says 20,000. This abbot, who I would consider to be more knowledgeable than him, says, oh, it's a whole lot more than that. It's more like 150,000. And he says, people want to throw that number out there and say, you can't trust your Bible. There's 150,000 variant readings of the, of the Bible. He goes on to explain. He says, the, stru- the true state of the case is something like this. Of the 150,000 various readings, more or less, of the Greek New Testament, we may dismiss 95% from consideration at once as being obviously of such character or, su- or supported by so little authority that no critic would regard them as having any claim to reception. He says, 95% of that stuff that they're talking about can be easily thrown out. Maybe there's one manuscript, and in one manuscript, one word is changed. We've got 5,000 other manuscripts that all have it the same. We've got this one variant reading. It's easy to throw that one variant variant reading out because we've got so many others that are in unison with one. He says 95% of these supposed various readings can be easily dismissed. He goes on. This leaves, we will say, 7,500. But of these again, it will appear on examination that 95% are of no sort, uh, are of no sort of consequence as affecting the sense. They relate to questions of orthography or grammatical construction or the order of words or such other matters. They concern only the form of the expression, not the essential meaning. What he says there, uh, uh, so we, we got rid of 95% uh, almost at once. Of the 95 per, 95% of the few that remain can be dismissed as just by saying, 
Well, they, this manuscript has a different order of words than that manuscript does, but they convey the same meaning. There's no difference in meaning, right? So that gets rid of the vast majority of what's left. He says this reduces the number to perhaps 400. 400 variant readings which involve a difference of meaning, often very slight, or the omission or addition of a few words. While a few exceptional cases among them may relatively be called important, but our critical helps are now so abundant that in a very large majority of these, we are able to determine the true text with a good degree of confidence. Well, that's a big difference, isn't it? This guy says there's 20,000 inconsistency. This guy, this, this scholar says, no, there's really more than that if you want to take into consideration all of them that they're talking about, maybe 150,000. But you can get rid of all, almost all of those and boil it down to about 400 where there's any really inconsistency in the, in the biblical text and he says those all can be resolved as well. Uh, again, this is a false claim. The reason why I think we need to address this is, here's this guy who puts out this article as though he, that, uh, he's sort of driven a, a nail into the heart of the Bible, and he hasn't. All of the things that he's saying about the Bible are either not established or can be easily explained. This, this article is just way off base. So he goes on, here's the conclusion. There are many ways to interpret the Bible. Some people believe every word is literally true. Some people believe it is a compilation of stories that serve up a moral. The agnostic questions everything in the Bible, and the atheist disputes it. Notice this. Yet in all of this, the Bible is not to be discounted. What? Don't you think that he just did a pretty thorough job of discounting the Bible? That's what he's just done. He's tried to discount the Bible. He said, oh, we shouldn't discount the Bible. Well, if what he says is true, the Bible ought to be thrown away. Because there's nothing of value there that can be trusted whatsoever. If what he says is true, but remember, of course, there's not a word of that that's true. But if what he said had been true, the Bible ought to be totally discounted as being completely unreliable. He says, in all of this, the Bible is not to be discounted. It is a moral compass that can serve all civilizations and with an open mind can be a source of comfort and inspiration to every person. Okay, you've heard the expression of somebody talking out of both sides of their mouth? Wouldn't you think that's exactly what this guy is doing? There's nothing of value in the Bible. If what he says is true, then what we ought to do is just gather these all up and burn them. Because they can't be trusted. How will we know what part is right and what part's not? Everything he says in that article is false and should be totally uh, re- rebutted as we've tried to do in our lesson tonight. That's just, that, that article is just, it's inflammatory is what it is. That's an inflammatory article in its attack against the Bible. Thanks for your good attention to what we had to say. Uh, I didn't know if you saw that in the Daily Herald or not, but when I saw it, I, I thought, man, we, that's answerable. We need to answer that. We shouldn't let that stand and shake people's faith up. There's just nothing to that. Uh, but again, as I said at the outset, I think it does a really good job of exposing what the Mormons really believe about the Bible. And they're just wrong. We have, we have God's reliable word to guide our lives today. And we have great confidence that when we pick up the Bible, we're reading the inspired truth from God. Thanks for your good attention to what we had to say. As we end the lesson, we'll sing a song of invitation. If you need our assistance in helping make your life right with God, let us know. If you need to obey the gospel, uh, by obeying that simple gospel plan of salvation, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, let us know. We'll help you. We'll study more with you if you need study. If you're a Christian and you need the prayers of the saints, let us know. We'll be glad to pray with you and for you. How can we help while we stand and sing this song?